Blog Talk Radio. Hi, and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Michael James Masushi is an award-winning media producer, video artist, writer, musician, curator, mediator, and educator. He serves as an arts commissioner for the city of Santa Monica, where he chairs its prestigious public art committee. His work has been profiled and presented in a variety of media, including on PBS, the BBC, Bravo, and the Discovery Channel, as well as in a variety of print media. And Carol, I know you've known Michael for many years. Yes, I have, Claire. And Michael, we're so honored to have you. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you, Carol. It's a it's a wonderful thing for the work you're doing, and uh, to be here and to be able to talk to you and express the ideas that we've done and that we've talked about together over the decades. It's a real honor. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, I noticed that on your Easy TV Museum dot com website that you say throughout Easy TV's almost 40-year history, members of the core group have helped literally hundreds of artists by donating equipment usage, expertise, professional contracts, contacts, and other resources. And numerous productions, exhibitions, performances, and lectures would simply never have it existed without the intellectual and economic generosity of EZTV. So please tell us more about this. Well, EZTV is a difficult thing to encapsulate in a sound bite, and one of the toughest things we've been grappling with since 1979 is how to really express what what this is. I think filmmaker Nina Rota expressed it best that Easy TV is a philosophy. It's a way of working in which you take for as a given the notion that if you have a tool, when you're not using it, maybe someone else can be. And so throughout our evolution, and we've had to reinvent ourselves numerous times over the decades, as technology changes, as the needs change, as the distribution opportunities change. But we've always been very acutely interested in how technology mediates art making. And and by being early adapters of every kind of digital innovation that's happened uh, since the 1980s, we've been able to share that information, in some cases sharing information was more valuable to other artists than sharing the tools themselves, especially in the more recent decades when, you know, many, many people now have a really good laptop that's able of, capable of, you know, editing HD and in many cases 4K video. So as the production tools have become more and more accessible and more and more ubiquitous, the, the tool generosity aspect of EZTV has in many ways uh, no longer needed to be the most important aspect. What we, what we do is we're full-time working artists, um, but, but we have a community of people who come and go over the years, in some cases stay for decades, in other cases just work with us for a month or two. Uh, and, and through that collaborative process, they see our approach to DIY, and we learn from them what their struggles are and what their solutions are in their own arts-based practices. So it's a community of people, you say, who come together and donate. Are they donating their time uh, working with you? Or Very often. I mean, there are cases where the economic realities of paying rent and buying food and stuff require some nominal expenses be paid. But um, but very, very often it's... it's uh, it's like a think tank. It's like a laboratory. It's like an experimental space where things are tried. In many cases, those things culminate in a finished project that then gets distributed or exhibited. In many cases, just uh, 
things get tried and, and things get learned and then, then people move on. In the early days, before accessible access to video projectors and, and now with all the various online distributions, Easy TV's early function for many people was as a place to show their work. So we created what is arguably among the first micro-cinemas in the world. And uh, we had a 100-seat theater where people creating every possible kind of work from experimental non-narrative video art to hard-hitting political documentaries to films about health to films about theater were able to be seen and, at that point for them as artists, more importantly, be critiqued by the press. So the LA Times, the LA Weekly, and what was once a stable publication in this part of the country, the LA Reader, would routinely review the work that we would exhibit, giving young filmmakers, and even in some cases very experienced filmmakers, a rare opportunity for mainstream critical attention. We no longer have to do that. So that function has kind of waned. Uh, so now we're more, in a sense, people that, that can consult with, with uh, artists either on the high professional level or still students and give them a lift up. And in a few cases, a few times a year, we will literally, at no cost, stage an entire production. Uh, but, but more and more, I think our role is, is in, in, in terms of communicating uh, information. Okay. Well, you say, uh, do you have production services available there? I mean, when people come in to work oh, with you? Oh, yeah. We have a, a full state-of-the-art um, 4K facility with a vocal recording booth and a complete music production system. Uh, we're in, a, in something called the 18th Street Art Center in Santa Monica, which is uh, a very storied and very important artist-in-residency facility which mainly actually offers residencies to international artists. We're obviously Americans, um, but many of the people that come and go at 18th Street are selected by their governments or, or various curatorial committees from all over the world to spend various residency times. So we have an ongoing facility there that is capable of producing work that has literally gone to both, you know, PBS and the Museum of Modern Art from the same equipment. Yeah. Oh, this is wonderful. Well, tell us the address. You're on 18th Street in Santa Monica? Yeah, it's the 18th Street Art Center, and uh, our, our group is Easy TV, and it's 1629 18th Street. So uh, artists and residents come from all over the world and stay Correct. in that same location. So you have the opportunity to meet people constantly from uh, various art people from the world, right? That, that's correct. And, and in, in some cases, we have collaborated with them and offered them collaborative resources just as we have local artists. So, so we've collaborated with artists from France and from uh, Asia and uh, through, well, throughout us. Latin America, yeah, yeah. So they tend to come here now fully equipped themselves, so they don't usually need tool access, but they sometimes may uh, collaborate now more intellectually, more in terms of exchanging information about how art making is done in their homeland and, and perhaps getting some advice on how to navigate the curatorial and exhibition you know, struggles here in North America. But yeah, it's it's an amazing it's an amazing place, and and uh, there are a few other organizations besides us, which are tenants, for lack of a better word, within 18th Street Art Center, including Highways Performance Space, which has been throughout the decades one of the at first controversial, and now perhaps that word has been replaced by visionary uh, venues for uh, experimental performance. So it's it's quite a place. Oh, that's great. Well, when you say, um, do you, you're talking about giving advice or consultations, what subjects would that be on? Well, well, these days, more and more oddly enough, it tends to be about massive scale site-specific video pro uh, projections. My partner, Kate Johnson, is uh, among the world's leading projection artists. She would probably prefer to call herself a video artist and filmmaker, and in fact, she is an Emmy Award-winning filmmaker. Uh, but she's also among many things, you know, that she does is that she has created site-specific 
video projections on, well, for those in this part of the country who know the Getty Museum and Center, she has simultaneously projected on all of the buildings of the Getty Center, turning it into a single art video installation. There's an art center in Santa Monica called Bergamon Station, made up of a number of buildings. She simultaneously converted the whole campus into a video installation by projecting literally larger than IMAX size uh, images. So she has a knowledge base, which is uh, very rare. So many, many artists, especially video artists, are very interested in doing their own large-scale site-specific projections. So she's an amazing resource to them that are, you know, very rare and, and clearly among the few women in that field who are able to achieve what she achieved. So that's an example. Um, they tend to be the things that you can't these days simply Google. I mean, you know, iTunes is, has a wealth of information about how to, you know, learn Adobe Premiere or do sound editing or, you know, make a, a good creative composition with your camera. So more and more the, the basic technical information has become ubiquitous. So now more and more we can serve by some very, very esoteric kinds of knowledge that, that many people have yet to have had experience in themselves. And so for what reasons would people contact you, Michael? Well, I, I think if, if it's a strange way to say this, but I think if they're looking for a simpatico relationship, I know Kate Johnson recently said at a, a speech she gave that um, she does see the think tank aspect of EZTV to be perhaps it's most important. So we're currently, in addition to, to working and consulting with, with artists, we're, like tomorrow we're going to be going to the UCLA Neuropsychiatric uh, Institute and, and helping them tell their story about the amazing brain research that's going on, just like many other kinds of funding have been decimated um, over the decades because of certain political ideologies in this country. Um, mental health and psychiatry and psychology have also been largely defunded. And in a city as large as Los Angeles, there are only a handful of mental health hospitals that exist, UCLA you know, arguably being the, the premier one uh, west of the Mississippi. But it's largely been defunded, and it has to exist by mainly by fundraising, similar to fundraising a film. So, oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. So, so one of the things I think we need to, to all as, as storytellers, whether we tell linear, you know, more, more I hate to use more conventional, but more um, accessible storytelling techniques that we see in film and television or the more abstracted, nonlinear ways that the art world does, we all need to recognize that the challenges confronting the arts are also confronting the sciences, especially in an age when far too many people in our country um, disbelieve science. They don't trust science. They think it's somehow, I don't know, I mean, I'm just saying the satanic <laughs> or, you know. But, um, but these are real phenomena, and we have more strength in numbers than as isolated little islands worrying about funding my film. Yes, you should worry about funding your film, but understand that there is a laboratory doing groundbreaking work that can help millions of people in your city that is facing the exact same situation and biases. And I know Carol was, was saying at one point of how art can be a universal conduit. And, and to me, Today, art serves many, many purposes, but its most important is as a way of translating ideas. So among the other kinds of non-artists we work with is we've worked with physicists on and off over the decades, trying to grapple with their amazing theoretical view of the universe right now. Whether it's true or not true, their breakthroughs and their theories need to somehow be translated into ways that the general public can absorb them. So we make abstract art pieces about quantum physics. Um, and 
And the audience largely looks at it and says, oh, wow, that's very nice. It's very visual. But some of them actually say, oh, wow. In a nonlinear, purely visual way, I can understand the notion of a holographic universe better than any textbook has ever done. So art is a great translator, and it's a great way to communicate cross cultures because art is intrinsically cannibalistic. It is always eating up each other's cultures. So whether it's this incredible genius art form of jazz, which was this amazing melding of African melodies and European instruments, or, or whether it was Cubist painting where Picasso looked at the art of Africa and put it on a European canvas, art is constantly building bridges by seeing what others are doing, interpreting it in their own way, and, and creating a wholly new, unique way of doing it. And art does that really well. And that doesn't mean that academia or science doesn't do what they do really well. But I think the more we see creativity as a continuum, on one extreme side we have art, on the other extreme side we have science, and in between we have these myriad of social sciences, law, education, we'll start to see that creativity is, is the thing to be cherished. It's hard because we do live in a country where creativity is not often rewarded, and, and more and more funding has become, of course, problematic. And I know that's the, the subject of your show, is how do, how do filmmakers make their unique original voice in a world that really is only interested in recapitulating whether Kim Kardashian's buttocks, excuse my French, are real or not. <laughs> but it's a challenge. Uh, of course it is. Oh, my gosh, that's so good. Now, let me just say to you that let's go back to the visuals that you that you give to the physicists. Yeah. Because, I, I of course, uh, running the Roy Dean Film Grant, I got to watch literally thousands and possibly more of documentaries or potential docs a year in their trailers. And what is this bridge between the science and and the people is usually in animation form. Right. And right. and right. that's your visual. That's exactly what you're saying. They're using art because we can't get it. I mean the guy sits in this talking head is telling us all this stuff and, and we it's what did he say? Right. And then that we have a few visuals and we say, Oh, I got it. I got it. That's right. So we we have steered away in, in recent ten, fifteen years from the more and, and again, I hate to use the word conventional because that seems to be a put down, and I'm not meaning it that way. Um, but but the the normal way that um, filmmaking is is done, um, and and we started to experiment more and more with melding documentary, or at least an essence of truth, into, for lack of a better word, an art piece. We 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 shun conclusionism. I mean, I I, I find it very difficult, whether on the far right or the far left, when someone has figured it all out. We are a tiny little infestation on a speck of dust floating around the end of a galaxy <laughs> that is one of hundreds of billions of other galaxies. The notion that any of us has figured it out is suspect to me. I think we're still learning. I think we're still questioning. I think we're getting closer. But I don't think we're anywhere near striking distance of having anything figured out. So I prefer to, I mean, again, to quote Kate Johnson, to ask questions rather than to give conclusions. And I think that's more and more as we become older artists, um, whereas in my youth I, I had the whole world figured out, you know. I now <laughs> right. know I don't. So so what I like to do is listen to a physicist and then interpret as an art piece what I think they said. And they'll often say, no, I didn't say that. And I'll say, well, think about it. You really did, or at least you gave the impression you did, and maybe that should be a clue to you with your own communication chain how you want to craft your narrative in a different way. 
So I think artists are excellent at making portraits, but portraits rarely really look like the person. At their best, a portrait is a feeling or an impression of one aspect of a person. And I think that's one of the things we do really well. Uh, not just us specifically, I'm not, but artists. That's what artists do really well. And I think that needs to be looked at more. And there's, a, there's an interesting, since we're on the subject of science, and then I'll get off science, um, there's an interesting dialogue. We've all heard of STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. There are many people who are arguing we need to turn STEM into STEAM, science, technology, engineering, art, and math, because the art aspect will be the way that the information gets translated in a more accessible, more universal way, whether it's as simple as book design in a textbook or as complicated as a highly produced Discovery Channel, you know, piece about the universe. The art making will become more and more critical in the success or failure of the dissemination of this information. So there are a lot of people trying to push for that and to make it a core part of education and, and to teach creativity. One of the scientists we're going to be meeting tomorrow at UCLA is studying creativity. He's taken jazz masters and nuclear physicists and, and studied their brains and is trying to find out well, what is this thing? What is this intangible thing? And can we learn to, to improve it? Can we learn to develop it among people who have been told erroneously they're not creative? And, uh, you know, how do we make more people part of this family? How do we enfranchise more people to know that among their birthrights are not only life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but also life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, and creativity. And, and I, I feel this will be a crucial discussion in the next decades, is, is teaching children from their earliest that they are not only beautiful, that they are not only loved, which are all critical things, to nurture them and to encourage them to go, to use that overused phrase, outside the box. And, and uh, that's, a, that's another thing we're really interested in. Absolutely. That's brilliant. Well, while we're here on the subject of art uh, and funding, um, the information that we've been getting recently is that uh, PBS and uh, the National Endowments for the, Human uh, for the Arts may be cut. Uh, and yep. the question for you, since you you are on the board, uh, the board of the Art Institute in Santa Monica, right? The Art but, Council, but the Arts Commission. Yeah, it's a part arts of the commission. city government. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, being on that Arts Commission, you you know the value of art to the community. So, if we were Ooh. to lose either one of those or both of those. Uh, what would it mean to us, as, as uh, uh, to the audience? How would that affect all of us? Well, in, in, in a number of ways, as you might, as you might, you know, anticipate from your question. I mean, I'll, I'll separate NEA and, and Corporation for Public Broadcasting slash PBS as separate because they will impact in separate ways. First thing, when people criticize um, government funding for the arts, they need to put it in a relative chart as to just how much money is actually being spent. The entire budget of the NEA is less than the cost of one stealth bomber. And that is an absolute, absolutely undebatable fact, that we give hardly anything to the arts in this country. But that being said, those we do give to rely on them. And they tend to be more and more community-based um, institutions, small groups, theater groups, art galleries, community centers, libraries, various kinds of entities scattered around the country are getting meager checks from the federal government to support one tiny aspect of what they do. By far, all of these institutions have to find the bulk of their money elsewhere. No one can survive on funding from the 
National Endowment for the Arts. Not that they're not doing great work, but their resources are very limited. So in many ways, what a grant from the NEA does is it becomes a vote of confidence which encourages other funders to contribute, much like winning an award, an Oscar, an Emmy, something like that. So getting a grant from the NEA means that they have been vetted and that they have been acknowledged and awarded by a group of major experts in their field in the arts. So in many ways, that's what an NEA grant does, is it helps you get other grants. With the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the, the impact will, would probably be more visible. So we have, I don't know how many hundreds of local PBS stations scattered around this country. Under one of the interpretations of what might happen, Corporation for Public Broadcasting would be privatized. It would become an entity separate. And, and what would likely happen is the various support that it gives to all of these local stations would erode, if not altogether disappear, resulting in PBS becoming ultimately more an online streaming service like a Netflix, like a Hulu, like iTunes. In fact, probably just being bundled with them. So if you wanted to watch Frontline, you wouldn't turn on a UHF station or a cable TV channel. You would probably stream it. Um, that means obviously a lot of local people will lose their jobs. It may or may not mean that at least the stellar programs that PBS nationally are known for would disappear, but they would need to be accessed in different ways. The biggest economic hurt, I believe, would be in the loss of all of these local jobs, of all these stations that, you know, and they tend to be small outfits these days. They've shrunk a lot. But the big producing entities, WNET in New York, WGBH in Boston, they would continue on, but more as production companies than as TV stations. Um, either way, I don't like the prospect. I think with the small amount of money that this government allocates to art, uh, it's not going to change anything on our budget by defunding them. It's clearly much more a political and ideological thing that has been underway for a very long period of time. There's a lot of conservative voices in this country that believe government should serve no role in the arts, that it should be a purely private thing, just like the rest of us, they would call it the entertainment industry. But it's troubling. Santa Monica, when you mentioned the Arts Commission, we're among the few places left in the United States, possibly the only one to this degree, that still gives grants directly to artists. Um, most funding entities give grants to other smaller institutions that then figure out ways of dividing up that money for their administrative costs, their overhead, and then what's left for actually commissioning new work. But Santa Monica firmly believes that uh, art is, is, is an integral part of the community and that art making is an integral part of any community and that a great community must make great art. So it tries. It tries real hard. Again, I mean, it's not like it's huge amounts of money, but it does every year mean the difference between an art piece getting made and not getting made. So I'm real proud in my tiny little way to be able to help in that. And I think it's one of the the models that, you know, is, is disappearing in this country. Oh, my goodness. It sounds wonderful. Now, uh, how does the uh, Santa Monica Arts Commission, uh, Commission get their money? Do they, uh, is this from individual donations or do they get it from taxes? Well, um, no, no taxes per se. There is a small aspect of the, the budget that does go, of course, to um, we're we're unpaid volunteers, but there is a paid uh, cultural affairs division of, of paid staff people. So some of that, the tax goes to that. Um, now they are only now beginning to develop something through a separate entity that spun off of the Arts Commission last year called Santa Monica Arts Foundation, which will seek private money as more and more of the other monies uh, 
evaporate. But to answer your question, it comes from building development. So when somebody comes in and wants to build a new hotel or uh, a big store, depending on the, uh, the structure of how they do it, either 1% or 2% of that money goes to fund the, uh, the, the various uh, granting projects and, uh, and, and to create public art. So one of the things we're also interested in doing is, is making art accessible outside of the museum so that somebody walking down the street or visiting a park will, in addition to experiencing nature or going shopping, will also have an art-based experience. So uh, we're very interested in putting more and more art in more and more places. And, and not just physical art like sculpture, but uh, also site-specific performance work, dance. There's a number of uh, experimental dance pieces that are staged in the parks in Santa Monica throughout the year and jazz. So to bring art to the people, um, because another sad reality is that a ticket to Walt Disney Concert Hall is not cheap. And even a ticket to the Los Angeles County Museum of Art is $20. So for many of us, that's not a problem. But for many other people, it is a problem. So so we have to find ways to not only make art accessible, but to make art experiences more affordable. And uh, in some ways, online will also be a factor that more and more uh, experimental pieces, performances, things like that are streamed online. Uh, many, many artists post their paintings and, and photographs online. So there are more and more distribution channels, but, but we do also have to address the, the sort of, uh, I hate to use a word like elitism, but at least it's economic elitism, that it's really tough to go to the opera if, you, you know, if you're not <laughs> right. doing well. You know? These are realities. <laughs> Right, I know, Um, because I went to the opera a lot in New York, and uh, you can actually, or you were able to stand if you, uh, for like $20 or something, it's a very minute amount of money, and of course, after the first act, most, a lot of the wealthy people go home, and uh, and the um, ushers would uh, whiz them down at the last minute to get all the empty seats. And so they did, went out. I mean, those aficionados who would be standing, it was wonderful. I loved it. You know, because I used to buy, I would get one ticket a year because it was so expensive, or two. And uh, one of my employees said, um, I'm going to get a year subscription at $25 a ticket. I said, my Gosh, that's way uh, way up in the bleachers. He said, "Yes, you want to go with me?" I said, "Of course." Well, you you really needed an oxygen tent to get up there, Michael. <laughs> but but these were the diehards, you know. Right. I remember saying to the woman next to me at, at uh, Turnbow, I said, "What did you think of?" She said, "Well, the sets were not as good as they were in 1984, but <laughs> otherwise, it, you know." So, <laughs> These people were there, and it was—you could hear a pin drop. They—they the they were so. Yeah, it, yeah. It was wonderful. I loved it, and that's—I I don't think we have that in LA, um, uh, where you can get in so cheap. But it really is important, and I also love the way Hollywood has so much art on buildings. That I hope Santa Monica will do that too. It's—it's it's a dream it, to it, walk down the street and you're just encased in this lovely art and trees yeah. it's wonderful yeah it, it it does i mean what what curiously always happens of course is the diversity of tastes that exist in the world so for every piece of art that that is is put up um many people will love it other people will think it's an atrocity so that's another you know another dialogue that that we're going to be entering into over the next couple of years is really trying to get much more of a community dialogue and community participation as to how do they how do they see Santa Monica as a city what kind of art do they want to see because you know those of us in, <laughs> and I will say this about myself those of us more in the pretentious art world uh, may or may not be speaking in the right way to uh, you know uh, a young family that's never been introduced to abstract conceptualism or, you know, very edgy performance art and may not actually want it in their neighborhood. So I think dialogue in all cases needs to happen more. And and in a lot of ways, 
art is invisible to many people. Art is everywhere. Everything you touch is is designed by somebody. Um, but we, but we don't think very often of art as being basically the way everything gets done. Um, and I think the more we we talk to each other and realize that there are people who differ greatly with us in terms of our tastes, our aesthetics, certainly our politics. But um, the less we demonize them and the more we see their humanity and see their struggle and see that they're entering this conversation from a very different life experience than mine, um, maybe, you know, and it won't happen next year, but maybe over time we, we can heal some of the horrible wounds that are systemic now, not just in America, but in many, many of the industrialized nations. And uh, it's going to be a, I think it's going to be a difficult conversation, but I think it is one that can happen. And I think it is one that can help because I think the, uh, the, I, the ideology has gotten in the way of everything. Uh, well, Michael, you're so right. Um, you've got a program called the Artist-Run uh, Philanthropy. Could mm-hmm. you tell us yeah. about that? Yeah, yeah. In, in a strange way, uh, <laughs> and that phrase has more recently been co-opted by much better healed uh, artists than ourselves, but that's fine. I think that's great. Um, early on, it was very unorganized kind of thing. Somebody would walk in the door. They would tell us about what their dream was, what thing they wanted to do. And depending on what the realities were at the moment, what, what else the equipment was being given for, they could walk out with equipment. Um, in the 90s, we realized we needed to somehow – um, make it less haphazard. So we've laid it completely in the hands of the artist as to how to approach us. There is no formal paper to fill out, but we do want you to present us. And, and these days, like I said, it, it's actually less necessary because many, 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 many more people can afford a decent camera and software and a computer so they can at least do fundamental filmmaking. That still doesn't mean that they can afford major sets to be constructed or things like that, and we certainly can't help them with that either. But, um, but in the 90s, when people still couldn't afford an editing system at a time when a really basic cuts-only editor you know, costs $15,000, um, we allowed people to convince us to help. And we helped many, many, many kinds of people, uh, not just artists, not just documentarians, but scientists and uh, uh, community workers, community activists. Um, Philanthropy to me has now become a problematic word because when I think of a true philanthropist, and I'm, I'm not just saying this to throw you a compliment, but I think of someone like you. I think you have done true philanthropy. More and more philanthropy has become part of the marketing program of a major entity. So a major bank will fund a ballet or, or an art show and stuff like that. But to me, it's more marketing and advertising because they slap their name all over the place on it. And, and, and it's not like it really takes anything out of them. So to me at the highest levels, and I do have exceptions, I, I think Bill and Melinda Gates have done amazing work. I think Warren Buffett is doing amazing stuff. So I do think there are some gazillionaires who are truly practicing philanthropy. But for many people in the billionaire class who later in their life as they retire change their job title from CEO to philanthropist, I think for a lot of them, it is a marketing strategy, especially when certain billionaires splatter their names over all of the structures they fund. <laughs> and, uh, you know, basically, it's, it's, to me, it's advertising. Yeah, and, of course it and it's also, it, uh, in terms of a legacy, once, once they've passed on, um, it, it continues to brand the various progeny of their corporations and their relatives with a certain kind of value added 
situation where they're seen as doing public good, and that's good for business. So philanthropy to me has now become a little bit of a tough word to handle. But when we talked about artist-run philanthropy, it was really like working class people helping each other. The notion that any community can do more. No matter how much or how little you have, you can always do more. You may not be able to do a lot more. But if you have a camera sitting in a closet over the weekend, you can lend it to somebody if it's just going to sit there. You can do that. And um, I think there isn't enough of that speak. There is, you know, I, I find artists, and, and let's, let's stick more like to documentarians for the moment, because I find their struggle to be different than others. Because we, we live in a, in a world where as essential as documentary filmmaking is and, and as re rewarding it is to the community, it is not a highly valued commodity economically. And it's very hard to make a living as a documentary filmmaker. And I think you and I certainly know way too many documentary filmmakers who have made one film in their whole life. Right. Not that they don't have the talent for more, but the sheer effort it took to make that one. And then at the end of it, they can't sell it. There used to be at least DVD sales. Now, you know, there's no economic model. They do free or very low-paying screenings around town, um, but they basically, it, it becomes, economically speaking, a, a total labor of love. So for them, I think finding ways to mitigate the costs of, of filmmaking will be a continually essential aspect to their process and one where, again, information needs to be disseminated more and more. And you do a brilliant job of that with your workshops, your lectures. Oh, and thanks. I, I think there are people like you who are, who are doing the good work, but they can't clone you. You know, there needs to be more. <laughs> there needs to be more. And, right. um, and I think that's a reality I, that I see most acutely um, facing the documentarians. Because at least there's, in the art world, the fantasy, the, the lottery of situations where you can be the next Jeff Koons and you can become, a, you know, Jeff Koons is apparently, according to credible business sources, worth a half a billion dollars. Damien Hurst is literally worth a billion dollars. So at least there's a fantasy for a visual artist that they can become ungodly rich. Of course, it happens to, you know, one thousandth of one percent of the people but there is no such model in in documentary filmmaking correct me if i'm wrong but i don't believe anyone has become a billionaire making no. documentary films yeah. not that i know of. right not but that i know of either here's a question uh, for you one of the women who won my grant about 10 years ago is making a film about kusama who is the world uh, who is a great artist who was here in the 70s and went home and lives uh, on the grounds of a mental institution. She is considered the greatest living artist in Japan. Wow. So uh, these two filmmakers start, uh, got the rights uh, to make this film and started making it years ago, and it has been an almost impossible film to fund. They get no money from or have won very few grants. They are exceptionally talented. Their work is superb. So it's not the quality of the work. It seems to be the subject that art films are hard to fund. I've seen this with other films too. Right, have right. you? Have you seen this? Well, it's it's absolutely the, absolutely the case. There is a perception, and I guess the economic statistics bear it out um, that that pretty much you make a film about an artist, you're going to lose money. Um, oh, no. it, it, it's, I, I think it's hard to argue with that. That, of course, is not a reason not to make the film, but if it's coming out of your own pocket, it might mean, you know, I've literally, you may too, I've literally known filmmakers who got evicted after they finished their film. They finally did it. They finally, you know, after six, eight, ten years, it's finally done. It's out there, and they've they completely maxed out their credit cards. They've borrowed from every friend and relative who was in a position to lend them, and, and now they have no means of support. So it, it's, I, I think we need 
you know, I, I don't want to paint a, a depressing picture because I think in many ways it's not depressing. But I do believe that there needs to be more honest conversation as to the professionalization of being an artist, that at least in the visual arts, the cliche for decades and decades and decades was the way to be a professional visual artist was to get a teaching job at an art school. Even that is now becoming more and more difficult. And more and more of those jobs are, now, are not tenure-tracked. They're part-time, and you know people are talking about college professors now as the new working poor. So that model is dissipating. For, doc, for feature filmmakers, of course, there's the lottery of that. You're going to be the next camera and you're going to be the next whatever. Of course, again, one thousandth of one percent of those people do that. But at least people apparently are more willing to invest and take a chance with a, you know, a feature film with the two uh, mandatory sex scenes and uh, three you know, violent scenes they're, they're more willing to fund that because they believe at least they're going to break even. That at its worst, it'll, you know, it'll be a minor thing, but the cost of the project is so low that even as a minor thing, they're going to make either money, if not break even. With documentaries, they have no such delusion. Documentary films very rarely make money. So we have to find other ways to... Uh, to commoditize them. We have to find other ways to allow them to perpetuate. They are not only among the most important types of filmmaking, but they are this wonderful bridge between journalism and storytelling and education. And, uh, and I fear that much like other things that are very valuable but, but somehow don't make money, like a symphony orchestra or a ballet company, we have to find other ways to support them. And it's not obvious to me what those are. And that is troubling. That is the truth. I believe that documentary filmmakers are our last vestige of true journalism. Yeah. I'll believe them faster than I believe a news broadcast or anything else. I'm because the three to five years they've invested of their life into one subject, well, who wouldn't pay attention, right? Uh, if you are, if you really want to know the truth, it's there. And and yet, they did a study where they showed a documentary with um, um, where they made a point, one point, and the whole film was about making this point. It was fairly clearly uh, told with credible and concrete information. So at the end of the screening, the people said, uh, several people stood up and said, well, that's not true because of this or that. And then, mm-hmm. yeah, and then yeah, those, yeah. and the people in the audience said, oh, but no, we just, we just heard Dr. So-and-so say, no, but he's wrong because. And before the night was over, they had changed every single person's mind in that room to disbelieve what they had just seen. And that's that. It's that easy to do. Peer pressure will take you away from the truth. There, there's no question. And and we 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 grapple with you know. I mean, we all watch the news, and, and, and we can't believe what we're watching. Where we're seeing, <laughs> you know, almost fifty percent of our citizenry looking at the same fact and coming up with a completely opposite conclusion. That is, to us at least nonsensical on its face and clearly wrong yet those people are true believers <laughs> it is hard it is hard to reach them and yes. and I, I think I, I i hope that the documentary evolves and and in some ways and and this is definitely happening some ways learns more and more the visual vocabulary from video art um because i think one of the one of the ways we do connect with people is with visual vocabularies and visual vernaculars that are more speaking to the subliminal aspects of us and not so much to the the ego and it aspects of us and, and really are kind of going underneath and hitting us at our core. And um, sometimes even great documentaries suffer by being didactic by being preachy, by being um, perceived as one-sided, 
and and I think that's one thing that that we do need to look at and 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 encourage encourage adoption of of perhaps again um you d- you don't have to approve of absurd or incorrect behavior but but I think we do have to see more the humanity in that person that however that person came to their erroneous beliefs it was largely through a flaw in their education so you're not born a racist you're taught to be a racist and right. uh, and all of these things i think we we need to we need to see us all as um subjects of the same problems that we've all been misinformed that we've all been miseducated um and that in in ways we can perhaps explain we should but we should listen to them too it doesn't mean we believe them but we need to see where they got to where they are from and sometimes i feel documentaries have become on both sides um more more tools of propaganda and um and political agitation and 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 not so much as healing um earlier earlier this week um, the, the Pan-African Film Festival, which is here in L.A. It's the largest um, African film-based festival, I think, probably in the world, certainly certainly in America. They, uh, they had their 25th anniversary, and so they showed um, a selection of films from their 25 years that they invited back as being special moments. And one of them was a film by a director named S. Pearl Sharp called The Healing Passage. And actually, Kate Johnson from EZTV, um, edited the film and, and Easy TV in a small way helped help support make it happen. Film was from I believe 2004, and it's about the journey that the Africans, once they had been kidnapped, made on the ships between Africa and the Americas, and the tens of millions of people who died along the way, apparently. And and it's a it's a film. The idea, again, it's called the healing passage, is that there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of anger and a lot of resentment against people that look like me. And, um, and there's, a lot, there's a lot of a journey we all have to go on. And, and I think films like that, you know, they at least try. Um, they, they don't, you know, it's, it's clearly not very positive look at at, at what Europeans did to Africans, but but at least it's opening a door as to how do we how do we go forward? How do we all how to first how do African Americans heal from this systemic you know trauma that has gone multi generational? But then down the road, not as its primary purpose, but as a yet another purpose, is how do all the how the wall of the people heal. I think projects like that n- need encouragement. And I think the, again, conclusionary things, I've got the whole universe figured out. You're a terrible person. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think those, those projects have, have run their course and, and, and run their value. And I'd, I'd like to see less of them and, and more taking a more expressionistic, impressionistic look at the world and, and realize... You know, to quote the old Fire Sign Theater comedy group from the '60s, we're all bozos on this bus. You know, <laughs> if, and and I, I, that's how I've lived my life. You know, I, I know I'm a bozo. I know I don't know everything. I know I don't know hardly anything. Um, but I want to keep learning, and I want to keep communicating and talking, and, and seeing what other people have to say. And it's hard. It is, but this is the way to live, being humble. I saw a man one night win a grant because the judges kept going back to that one word. There were two people up. This was in New Zealand. I started a grant down there, believe it or not. And uh, the guy, the judges said, but he was so humble, and he's knowledgeable, and he's a talent. But, and that's for that one thing, he won the film grant. <laughs> wow. And I like that. So humility pays off in art. I mean, because we are we are so beholden to the artists for the information, the guidance, and the beauty that they bring us. I think that supporting art is the most important thing we can do. I, 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 I do. 
I, I do agree, but with a caveat. Um, I, I think that is a truth, but it may be it may be problematic. Um, I, I know a lot of artists who walk around proudly saying art is the most important thing in the world, and I say to them, tell that to a young mother in Flint, Michigan. Um, you know what what she needs she doesn't need a Jeff Kuhn statue in her park. You know, that's not going to solve it. So so I, I think that is true, but I think the more we see artists in their myriad manifestations, writers, filmmakers, visual artists, dancers, and just another category of working professional the more we see them along with the civil rights attorney and and the doctor working in a community hospital and the social worker and the teacher in the inner city, the more we see them as more of that continuum of positive people doing positive work, I think we're going to go further than someone from with a, a degree from some elite school who, you know, has never had a hungry day in their life. Um, walking around saying what they do is the most important thing because I think it's a, it becomes offensive uh, to people. Again, one of the apparent. Um, hello. Yes, we're, I I'm can sorry. hear you. Um, apparently, one of the the many reasons people voted for Trump was because they felt they weren't being listened to. And they were being marginalized, and they were being dismissed, and they were being discounted because they were truck drivers or coal mine workers or steel workers. And, you know, I, I think we do need to learn to talk to them. I, you know, I, I say something, you know, I know that not everyone who voted for Trump was a racist, but I also know everyone who was a racist voted for Trump. And what we need to do is separate that community, make it a lot smaller, because there were a lot of people who voted for Trump who had previously voted for Obama. And we need to find out where the communication failed. And, and so I think the less, you know, we hype what we do or who we are, and we're just another kind of worker, and it's all important work, the people who keep the sewers running keep our cities alive. The people who transport our our food, you know, sustain us. We're all important. I think we have to we have to talk more that way. Um, despite the fact that I do believe that art does certain things better than other things. Uh, we can't discount the other things. Exactly. That's very well said. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. We have learned so much from you. My you're, pleasure. Thank you, Carol, uh, and congratulations for all that you do. Oh, you're very welcome. And I um, want to thank you very much for being a judge for all these years and donating your time to From the Heart. You've picked some wonderful winners, and we all appreciate that. Thank you. It's been an honor. Thank you. Okay. Till next time when we talk again. Thank you, Michael. Take good care of yourself. Thank you, Michael. Good luck Thank you. with your projects. Yes. Yes. Much okay. luck. Okay. Yeah. Bye for now. Be Goodbye. well, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. 
If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's david, R-A-I-K-L-E-N.com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to The Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone.